A man too busy to take care of his health is like a mechanic too busy to take care of his tools. Hello and welcome to episode 356 of Under the Call of MS, a Wellness Wednesday episode where we just talk about health and MS and stuff like that. No comics today. Alright, let's go over the basics. Multiple sclerosis, MS, is a chronic condition involving your central nervous system. With MS, your immune system attacks myelin, which is the protective layer around the nerve fibers. MS causes inflammation and temporary lesions. It can also lead to lasting lesions caused by scar tissue, which can make it hard for your brain to send signals to the rest of your body. There is no cure for MS, but it's possible to manage symptoms. If you catch it in time, catch it early enough, and don't have much of useless doctors that don't want to listen to you like I had. And uh, it takes me forever, 40 years to find doctors that will listen. Now I can finally focus on things. It's a little late. Now that I've progressed too far beyond what I wanted to progress. Well, I never wanted to progress at all, but... <laughs> I did not want to progress this far before I got the right answers and could figure out what I could do to hold shit off from future progression, which would have been nice to do many years ago. But Focus on finding the doctors that will listen to you because you're the patient, you're the expert that's talking about your body. You know how you feel, so don't find someone that tells you how you should feel. Or how you feel. Uh, some symptoms of MS are fatigue, gait issues with difficulty walking, numbness in your legs or feet, balancing, muscle weakness, muscle spasticity, difficulty with vision, optic neuritis, diplopia, nystagmus, speech issues, third speech. Uh, changes in volume of speech, scanning speech, where there's long pauses between words or syllables, all of which you can clearly hear by listening to my podcast. <laughs> I tend to have had those issues since childhood. Uh, acute or chronic pain, tremors, cognitive issues involving concentration, Memory, word finding, difficulty chewing or swallowing, sleep issues, problem with bladder control, uh, ways to get this figured out, see what you get, you have, if you have MS or some other condition that may be mimicking some of the MS, MS symptoms, uh, get, they'll want to give you an MR, MRI scan, the best result one is in a closed MRI with contrast eye. That's the best way for them to see the lesion, the active lesions and non-active lesions in your body. Uh, optical cohor- coherence tomography, OCT. It's a picture that's taken of the nerve layers in the back of your eye to check for thinning around the optic nerve, a spinal tap or lumbar puncture. I mean, these all relate 
basically how you get diagnosed, what your symptoms are at the time. That's why they have so many different types of ways to look at things. Uh, but the spinal tap is to find abnormalities in your spinal fluid. And it can also help you rule out infectious diseases. It can also be used to look for oligo, oligoclonal bands, OCBs, which can be used to diagnose MS. Uh, blood test to help eliminate the possibility of other conditions that have similar symptoms. And visual evoked potentials, the VEP test. It's a test re that requires the stimulation, stimulation of nerve pathways to analyze electrical activity in your brain. And they also have the gait, the walking test, and all that that you'll do when you're at the neuro neurologist office and stuff to find out more about it. Types of MS that we know from our past discussions. You got CIS, the clinically isolated syndrome, which is basically you have something, then you're not going to have anything else. That's all you got to deal with. Then there's relapsing remitting MS where you're going to have stuff come and go over and over. Uh, primary progressive MS where I, oh, that's, they jumped to that one. It should be secondary progressive MS before primary progressive MS. Because secondary progressive MS occurs when relapse remitting MS transitions into the progressive form. But you still may have noticeable relapses in addition to disability or gradual worsening of the, your function where I'm at. And then you'll go into primary progressive where it becomes progressively worse from the onset on your symptoms. Your MS may change and evolve. For example, going from relapse and remitting MS to secondary progressive MS. You can only have one type of MS at a time, but knowing when you transition to a progressive form of MS may be difficult to pinpoint. Uh, they have disease-modifying therapies that can help hopefully stay off future relapses and exasperations, but they are not to cure anything. If you have any extra walking abilities or any less pain because you're on them, that's great. That's a bonus. Accept it. Be happy with it, but they are not made for that. They're made to uh, stay off any future issues as long as possible. But don't take my word for it. Everything you should be talking with your doctors. Discuss that all with them because I'm just giving you my opinion. Just don't mean Jack. Jack. Uh, Avonex, Betaceron, Extavia, Pledridi, Rebif, uh, Dimethyl fumarate, Tecfidera, Fingolamide, Gelenia, Terraflunamide, Jabagio, Cladribine, which is Mavenclad, which I'm on currently, Duroxamel fumarate, Vumeridi, 
Saponamide, which is mazent. Uh, most of those are oral medications. Oral and self-injectables were all those that we just talked about or just mentioned. Then there's the IV ones like Elituzumab, which is Lemtrada, and Natalizumab, which is Tisabri, Metoxitrone, which is Novatrone, and Ocrelizumab, which is Ocrevus, which was my last medication that I had in between uh, oh, my brain just went blink, and I don't even know why they don't have it on this list. Uh, Copaxone, right? Yeah, Copaxone. It just didn't see, didn't sound right in my brain today for some reason. But Copaxone was my first DMD. And then I, that was my self-injectable, started every day, and then went to every other day. Then I went to the IV with the Ocrevus, and now I'm on the pill form of Mavenclad. So, five days of pills. Five days of pills. Isn't it for two weeks? I can't even remember what I did back in August. Now my brain just won't let me remember that shit. Pretty sure it was five days, two pills, two weeks, and then nothing else the rest of the year. Until next August. Or no, it was five pills for one week the first month, five pills for one week the second month. That's it. Yeah, well not five pills, but five days of pills. Everybody's different depending on your condition and your size and how your doctor sets you up with how many pills you take. It could be one to two a day, depending on where you're at. Uh, there's corticosteroids, there's methylprednisone, Medrol, there's Acthar gel, ACTH. It can all be used to deal with relapses, exasperations, and stuff like that, but also watch the side effects and the long-term effects. Of those, I was just dealing with so many us the other day on Facebook that was all pissed off because their doctor wouldn't give them steroids for their relapse, for their flare-up or whatever. And so they fought and argued with their doctor. The doctor finally okayed three days worth of steroids instead of five. They still weren't happy. They were fighting for it. And you've seen the responses, and there are so many responses that, uh, I usually write out my relapses. I don't sit there and go in for those steroids. Why are you getting all these extra things put in your body? You're complaining about it now, but what are you going to do when your liver gives up on you because you use steroids over and over and over and you sit there and you are got some other disease because of it? Are you going to complain too then that you did get the stuff that you pissed and moaned and begged your doctor for? I mean, that's the problem with society. And people don't research shit, and they just sit there and bitch for stuff that they think is helping them, and it's not. In the long run, it's really harming you even more. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen in 10, 15, 20 years down the line. There's going to be lawsuits against probably half these DMD drugs that we're taking now. We're going to find out the damage that they did. We're not going to find out until it's way too freaking late. 
But yeah. Uh, yeah, they got your quality of life with MS will depend on your symptoms and how well you respond to treatment. But even though this is un, this unpredictable disease can change course without warning, it's rarely fatal. Uh, as long as you get yourself care ahead of time and early enough, most people with MS don't become se- severely disabled and continue to lead full lives. As you can see with things like uh, some of the stars out there that people out there that have the disease and how they reflect upon it. Uh, and you can, there is one person that you can look up and check out if you want lessons from a junkaholic as uh, the person that's. They got all serious with the MS friendly diet. And before that, they just loved their junk food, going out with friends, their Ben and Jerry, their frozen dinners, their cheesy pastas, and going out social outings and partying with friends and takeout pizza and leftovers. All bad stuff that. They were stuffing in their body, and now they're talking. If you want, you can see what they ended up dealing with with a MS-friendly diet. I assume an anti-inflammatory style diet. Let's see if anything of those, any of the things they did, could help you in the long run. Uh, Montel Williams, I've been following him for since Christ my childhood and didn't know he had MS until I was in my I want to say late 30s early 40s before I found out about his MS even though he worked with the Madison School in Wisconsin and did some MS treatment there which I didn't know about until the past recent years but uh, he's also a big spokesperson for traumatic brain injury. And you know him as a talk show host. He's also an entrepreneur, a former Marine, a Navy submariner, a snowboarder, a multiple sclerosis survivor, and now his latest role. Well, this isn't his latest role, but traumatic brain injury and advocate for it, TBI. Uh, he's also got his podcast talking about MS and uh, medical marijuana and all that. He's a big promoter of that. I mean, that's the study he did at the Madison School uh, for an MS study that they worked on. Uh, but he's... March also happens to be Brain Injury Awareness Month along with MS Awareness Month. So that's a thing to help promote this month and look into. Uh, 
I mean, like he likes to focus on the numbers. Like there's over 5.2 million people who suffer from concussive or tra- traumatic brain injury. Again, I say take those numbers and shove them up your ass because I was never asked. I had it. I can guarantee you a lot of my childhood friends were never asked. They had it. And we all had concussions in our childhood and had all kinds of problems between our sports that we played and other our normal lifestyle. Uh, the term TBI tends to conjure up images of those whose bodies are exposed to extremes like football players or soldiers who have seen active duty. But the prevalence of TBI in veterans is a big part of the picture for for Williams, but he is also quick to point out that TBI can be caused by any bump, blow, or jolt to the head that disrupts the normal function of the brain. Initially, it may not cause anything other than confusion or very brief loss of consciousness, but it can get more severe over time. I mean, we've seen wrestlers who have lost their minds uh, because of traumatic brain injury, uh, calciums, buildups on the brain, all that stuff. Uh, let's see. Some of the people that sustained a traumatic brain brain injury in, injury uh, traumatic brain injury annually are uh, and here I hate I guess I gotta use the numbers, but they they're going off one point seven people million people who sustained a traumatic brain injury in a year of them 275,000 are hospitalized 1.365 million nearly 80 percent are treated and released from an emergency department and 52,000 die so that's some numbers for you which i hate using numbers but this source material I'm reading off uh, has numbers, so they aren't explaining any other way, and I can't think of a different way to throw it up there for that, so that's why you're getting those numbers. Uh, Those who are suffering from TBI may experience headaches, head or neck pain, loss of balance, vision disturbances, dizziness, fatigue, and we also gotta get into dementia and stuff like that, because when I see a homeless person walking the streets yelling at someone that's not there and stuff i think tbi and they're not posted on here it's like there's lots of other ways to look at it Uh, but yeah sadly some people commit suicide and kill their family members or someone else and We've had events like that. We've had lots of things. I've got my brain's going to get donated to uh, studies. Hopefully, they'll use it for good. Use it for more than I ever used it for. Uh, basically, Williams' interest in TBI says when you look at the brain of a person who has MS, their brain is riddled with scars. 
because most people don't even understand that MS means multiple sclerosis, which in Latin means multiple scars. We have multiple scars throughout the gray matter or the white matter in our brains and our spinal cords. And that's from a quote from Williams. And he hopes that research and treatment in the world of traumatic brain injury will open doors to discovery and hope for people with MS and other demyelinating diseases. Uh, one of the ways he's planning, playing his part is by advocating for the access of trials. Uh, there's clinic tri clinical trials that exist. You're going to have to look for them, see if there's anything that you can be part of if you want to be part of something like that. Uh, you can look up he created braininjurytrial.com to allow people to go online and see if they or a loved one might qualify to, to participate in a clinical trial based on their symptoms. So looking at, at that. Uh, in 1999, Montel Williams was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. In his words, I've probably had MS since 1980 and was just not diagnosed right. So let's say I've had it for 40 years like many. The first thing he did was read everything he could get his hands on about MS. And then he says one website was talking about life expectancy and it said for an African-American male, it reduces the life expectancy anywhere between 12 and 15%. This was 2000. So he is looking for Looking at this and thinking, it said the life expectancy of an African-American male at that time was 68 and a half years of age. If life is reduced by 15%, that would be 9.2 years off of 68 years. That's 59.1. That means he'd be dead right now. And he was 60 at the time when he heard about that. And that gave him like nine years to live. So I'm, he was like, are you crazy? That ain't happening. So he just went all about trying to find a way to beat the odds. And between foods and lifestyle and everything else, his DMDs and working with doctors, he's got himself at a point that he can suffer through life at a happier pace, I guess you could say is in my opinion is how I look at it. But yeah, he's working on it and he's, he knows the pain involved and deals with it on his terms and has his ways and forms to go through it. Another person is of course, I like Jack Osborne and everything, but I have mentioned in the past, I hate that when, people downplay certain things uh it's like he says it's easy to tell if someone has ms well that was a question he was asked and he said false but uh, it's 
Oh, that was some question. Yeah, that don't make no sense. It's questions that this company was asking Jack and Kelly. He did do You Don't Know Jack About MS campaign, which was in partnership with the Teva Pharmaceuticals. But when I click on it, it doesn't pop up that site anymore. So I don't know if he is still part of it or not. But uh, it's basically aimed to provide information to those who are newly diagnosed or living with MS. Uh, he was diagnosed with relapse and remitting MS in 2012 after seeing a doctor for optic neuritis or inflamed optic nerve. And before the eye symptoms occurred, he had been experiencing a pinching and numbness in his leg for three months straight. And he just ignored it, thinking it was a pinched nerve. Even when he got diagnosed, diagnosed, he thought he was too young to get this. And thought the average age of diagnosis was between 20 and 40. Uh, he said he wished he'd known more about MS before being diagnosed, don't we all? I mean, everybody wishes they knew more about stuff before they find out about it. Uh, soon after he learned about it, he tried to connect with anyone he knew with the disease to get first-hand personal accounts of living with MS. Reached out to his family and close friend Nancy Davis, who founded Race to Erase MS, as well as Montel Williams. And then his... And Jack recalls a time when a friend who also has MS was told by a doctor to take Advil, go to bed, and start watching daytime talk shows because that was all her life would be from now on. And there's so many doctors' opinions about things that are just beyond ridiculous. But yeah, Jack has been limited in sharing his story and living life to the fullest. Since being diagnosed, he's participated in Dancing with the Stars, expanded his family, and used his celebrity status to spread awareness share information and connect with others living with MS, which I don't see it out there that hardly at all. So I don't know what he was really pushing for promotion. I see him doing TV shows and stuff and enjoying life outside of it, but I don't see direct MS uh, representation being put out there. So and everybody's got their own opinions on how they go through with life and deal with things, but hey, if he can live a happy, healthy life through it and be able to afford to do whatever type of lifestyle he wants to get any type of care he wants, that's awesome. I wish everybody could, but not everybody has been born into that ability of a lifestyle, so many of us have to go day by day, check by check, dollar by dollar, and can't hop on a plane and fly to another country, get some type of stem cell stuff or anything like that done to hopefully help us along the way. But yeah, I would gladly just take an optic neuritis issues and a little numbness and pain instead of overall 
complete physical and body issues and pains and problems, but I don't know. It's hard to, and we are seeing a couple people that have struggled a little further, a little harder with the issues, bring out a deeper representation for the disease, but these are some that you can look into if you want. Check them out, and we'll come back one more time with another portion of a few more things that we can talk about. Hopefully find some things that you can use to help you get along easier, healthier, and better with this damn monster that we call MS. All right. And I'll be back right after this. Okay. Let's talk about one of the most dreaded things with MS, the MS hug. This little gorilla grabbing non-friendly hug that we can deal with it's a pain in the ass <laughs> the multiple sclerosis ms hug which is also referred to as girdling or banding is a collection of symptoms caused by spasms in the intercostal muscles these muscles are located between your ribs they hold your ribs in place and help you move with flexibility and ease. The MS hug gets its nickname from the way the pain wraps itself around your body like a hug or girdle. But this pain isn't unique to MS. You might also experience symptoms consistent with the MS hug if you have other inflammatory conditions, such as traverse myelitis and inflammation of the spinal cord. Costochondritis, the inflammation of the cartilage that connects your ribs, can also trigger an MS hug. I've been going through some of my old x-rays and scans and CT scans and stuff like that, MRIs, and I was looking at my ribs the other day and I have this area where I get this thing whereas the doctors tell me that it's a muscle that's like pinched in between the ribs and it's always in the same spot. So I wanted to look at research that area on my uh, exams. And I noticed in there, one of my ribs is actually bent. So I don't know if it's from back in my childhood when I cracked ribs and broke ribs, if they just grew weird back or what happened. And now it's pinching the, the nerves plopping in in between the ribs not the nerve the muscle and getting caught between the ribs but i don't know i was curious about that i can't wait to talk to my doctor when i see him about that but uh the ms hug is a tight uncomfortable sometimes painful sensation it's always painful it's very rarely non-painful to me uh that wraps around your body like you are being squeezed and it's not always around the whole body it can be on one side or the other also Uh, some people report no pain instead they feel pressure around their waist torso or neck others experience a band of tightening tingling or burning in the same area sharp stabbing pain or dull widespread aching can also be symptoms of an ms hug 
You may experience the following sensation during an MS hug. Squeezing, crushing, crawling sensations under the skin, hot or cold burning, pins and needles. I also have stabbing, compressing, squeezing certain areas, single areas instead of whole areas. And it's just can be very defined or widespread, in my opinion. As with other symptoms, the MS hug is unpredictable, and each person experiences it differently. Some people also experience these symptoms and feelings of tightness in their hands, feet, and head. Be sure to report any new symptoms to your doctor. You can also experience symptoms similar to an MS hug with these other inflammatory conditions that we talked about. I'm not going to go over those again. Uh, Causes, they say, heat, stress, and fatigue are common triggers for general MS symptoms, including the MS hugs. Hell, I had a really bad one one time, and it was in the middle of February when I was working outside. And so I think cold as well as heat can cause our issues to exasperate, in my opinion. An increase in symptoms doesn't necessarily mean your disease has progressed. One symptom of MS is dysthesia, an unusual tingling sensation under the nerve trauma, or caused by nerve trauma. Uh, Dysthesia could be causing your MS hug. Part of managing pain is knowing what causes it. Talk to your doctor about any triggers you notice. Keep a diary. Write any notes. It's always good to have that stupid notepad nearby. Just have one notepad that says MS. (laughs) And put anything in there that you need to. Just make it your little MS diary. That's what I I like having. Uh, Although the MS hug is the result of a muscle spasm the pain you feel is neurologic in nature in other words it's nerve pain not muscle pain over-the-counter pain relievers such as ibuprofen and acetaminophen are unlikely to bring relief many of the drugs used to treat nerve pain were originally approved for other conditions the exact way they work against nerve pain isn't clear the drug classes approved to treat the nerve pain of the MS hug are antispasticity medications, diazepam, anticonvulsant medications, gabapentum, and antidepressant medications like amitriptyline. And you just talk to your doctor about that and see what happens, see what he suggests or she suggests. Oh, there is no medication that can completely avoid having MS hugs. You can avoid triggers. You can minimize MS hugs by resting more, cooling off, treating a fever that's increasing your body's temperature, and finding ways to de-stress. I call it bullshit because I spent two weeks in a hospital with a major major MS hug issue and 
I was stressed. I was de-stressed. I was resting. I was cool. And none of that shit was helping. Um, cool, tiny sips of water would help give me a second's relief, but I have to keep sipping at it. And it didn't fully relieve it, but it just mellowed the pain out a little bit at a time each time I did it, but it just instantly came back and would increase if I didn't take another sip. Uh, moments like that I've had, I've had moments where I use massagers and stuff and nothing would penetrate or do anything to help it. I've done the hot and cold heat and ice packs. I've done just so many different things I've tried with the MS hug. And for many years before I even got diagnosed with MS, I had it many, many, many times and just never knew what the hell it was and tried things to help get through it. Uh, I've been pumped full, all kinds of pain relievers, muscle relaxers, all that shit. None of that did anything. And you ask to go off it because it's not doing anything. And instead, the doctors want to increase, increase, increase. Take more. Take more. (laughs) Eventually, you're going to die or we're going to get rid of your pain. (laughs) You can try lifestyle adjustments and home remedies with medical treatments to stay comfortable during an MS hug episode. Some people feel better when they wear lightweight, loose clothing. Uh... Try applying pressure to the area with the flat of your hand or wrapping your body with an elastic bandage. This may help your nervous system translate the feeling of pain or burning into pain-free pressure, which may make you feel better. Relaxation techniques like deep breathing and meditation can also sometimes ease discomfort during an episode. Some people with MS find that warm compress or warm bath help with MS hug symptoms. Heat makes the symptoms worse than other people, so it may take some trial and error to find what works for you. I pretty much curl up in a fetal position, cover myself up with blankets, ride it out, and just meditate. Focus on the pain areas, try and meditate it away, and there's not much that works. I will try anything, but have very rare, rarely have any luck with it. So, but managing unpredictable symptoms that affect your everyday life can be difficult and frustrating. Although the MS hug isn't a life threatening system, it may feel like it though. It can be uncomfortable and can limit your mobility and independence. Learning to live with MS hug may be a process of trial and error, especially because it's in the heart area. So a lot of times I went to the doctor many times, emergency room and stuff, thinking I was having a heart attack and found my test to prove that I was perfectly fine in that area. But they never figured anything else out until years Later, when I finally got a diagnosis of MS, now I can say, what about the MS hug? And they're like, what's that? And you explain it to them, and it's like, okay. So then they'll give you steroids or something to work with that and see if it can help. Reach out to your healthcare team if the hug makes you feel discouraged or depressed. Support groups 
All that are out there for you. Talk with your doctor about any new pain symptoms and keep track of the coping strategies that work for you. So next time you have it, you know what to do again. If you have it again and you got to deal with it, you can look back at those things. All right. Let's see. Medical PTSD. What's this all about? Uh, Actually, this is a person talking about PTSD just because all their medical conditions and stuff they deal with the physical trauma of being sliced open and emotional trauma of being packed in ice and or something like that or dealing with your disease progression and the medical issues that you have to deal with along the way the times you spend in the hospital what happens in the hospital yeah you can definitely get ptsd from that just like any other type of thing that can cause PTSD. Uh, there are treatments, but the EMDR therapy for PTSD can be pricey and insurance doesn't like to cover it. Uh, EMDR, a patient describes the traumatic events while paying attention to a back and forth movement, sound, or both. The goal is to remove the emotional charge around the traumatic event, which allows the patient to process it in a more constructive way. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. If you're in therapy now, this is a the method, methodology your therapist is probably using. The goal of CBT is to identify and modify thought patterns to change moods and behavior. There's cognitive processing therapy. Uh, this American Life apparently did an entire episode on it. CPT is similar to CBT in its goal, change the disruptive thoughts that resulted from the trauma. However, it's more focused and intensive. Uh, over 10 to 20 or 10 to 12 sessions, a patient works with a licensed CPT practitioner to understand how the trauma is shaping their thoughts and learn new skills to change their disruptive thoughts. There's exposure therapy, sometimes called prolonged exposure. Exposure therapy sometimes involves frequently retelling or thinking about the story of your trauma. In some cases, therapists bring patients to places that places that have they have been avoiding because of PTSD. There's virtual reality exposure therapy. A subset of exposure therapy is virtual reality exposure therapy. In VR exposure therapy, a patient virtually revisits the scene of the trauma and ultimately the traumatic incidents itself, like EMDR, the goal is to remove the emotional charge around the incidents. Medication can be a useful tool too, either alone or combined with other treatments. Uh, yeah, talk to it. A therapist about your anxiety system or symptoms, I mean. 
Uh, one that I would like to get as a sponsor for this podcast, and I'm going to give them a free shout out now is BetterHelp. Uh, it's the largest network of licensed therapists, personalized counselor matching, text calls, text calls or video chats are available, available 60 to $90 a week. They say this is when this is written, it may be different now. And you can get discounts by following through different podcasts or whatever. There's a regain. Uh, They specialize in relationship counseling. There's teen counseling. There's pride counseling. For the LGBTQIA plus members. But, yeah, along with PTSD comes depression and and suicidal thoughts and all that. So definitely speak with someone, talk to your therapist, your doctor, let them know where you're at, what's going on. And then let's put some plants in our house and give our house some extra life, some nice color, some liven it up a little bit uh, researchers investigated the effects of three different plant species the coriander the strawberry and the purple rape plant rape plant such a nice name uh, the green color of plants produces a soothing effect and you get soothing smells. Uh, research supports the theory that fragrance of edible plants like coriander and strawberry may help with mood regulation and relaxation. The results demonstrated that emotion and sleep are closely linked. Uh, this is one of the reasons aromatherapy is used to improve sleep quality. I love using aromatherapy things in our house. Every day, add them to a few drops to your air filters and stuff if you want. Get it to float through the house. Uh, researchers found that 15, just 15 minutes of interaction with green plants may reduce cortisol, the stress hormone concentrations uh, reduce sleep latency the time it takes you to fall asleep improve sleep integrity by reducing the number of micro awakening events the number of times you come out of deep sleep during the night uh, you'll get the most benefit from your house plants by keeping them in a room where you sleep there are also ways you can boost their sleep-improving qualities. And there's certain plants that are best for certain parts of the house to deal with odors and pets and sleep and all that stuff. Uh, on top of just having plants, you can also try connecting with them, especially before bed. You can do this by watering them, touching them, or smelling them. And some music or singing to them or talking to them doesn't hurt. And 
they're living items, they're living beings, living entities. Uh, try to spend 15 minutes with your plants before you go to sleep and to help you feel calmer, especially if you've had a stressful day. Uh, caring for plants can become can be a form of movement meditation as you mindfully go from plant to plant while you water and prune them, get rid of those dead leaves and stuff, keep them happy and healthy. Just like you, you don't want dead body parts dangling off you. Uh, you can also use your plants as part of a meditation practice before you go to sleep. Even something as simple as brushing your hand against a leaf and smelling the scent can be a form of meditation. Aromatic herbs and geranium plants are especially good for this. You can also try sitting with your eyes closed and reflecting on your plants. Observe what, what thoughts and associations come to mind when you're by them. Uh, one of the easiest ways to benefit from your plants is to carve out a moment in your day to admire them. This would ideally be in the evening before you go to sleep, but it's beneficial any time of day. So just cozy up with your plants, talk to them, and get along with them. Uh, simply looking at a pot of bamboo for three minutes can have a relaxing effect on adults, helping lower blood pressure and anxiety, according to a study. Uh, getting the best from your plants, a whole range of house plants can be beneficial to your health according to some research. The best plants to improve sleep quality include plants with green leaves like dracaenas and rubber plants, and they're so easy to take care of. Plants with colored flowers, particularly yellow and white. Edible plants like strawberry, basil, and chickweed. And those are just extra bonuses, having fruits that come from the plants or vegetables. Uh, plants known for their soothing fragrances, such as lilac or lang lang, would be wonderful for your home. Uh, introducing just one small plant to your sleeping space can help you feel calmer and sleep better. The power of plants is something we can all benefit from, whether you're in deep space or right here on earth but yeah and then you got i mean aloe vera you can have hanging around your house and it's just healthy as anesthesia and use it for cuts and wounds and all that stuff but lavender is just awesome it just keeps you calm and it has a beautiful smell and just light up the house of smell quickly. Uh, lilies are great to keep your life in balance and check. Uh, like peace lilies. They symbolize peace, tranquility. Tranquility, prosperity, purification, and solitude. Uh, peace lilies have such powerful symbolism. Speak positive affirmations to your plants. Only say what you yourself would want to hear. Uh, 
a snake plant is a good reminder to survive and thrive during hard times. These things can go through all kinds of things and withstand it. They serve as a reminder that you may feel alone or experiencing a difficult time. You can still choose to grow through and survive even the hardest situations. When you see this plant, find a quiet spot in your home to sit down next to it. Close your eyes, breathe in the cool, clean air it provides, and find your peace. Uh, eucalyptus is awesome. For those who need a reminder to appreciate the present and what the day will bring, the eucalyptus is the ideal plant. Take a few moments to inhale its healing and powerful scent. Doing this brings you back to the into the present moment. Yeah. But yeah, plants are good. Mother Nature has them on her for a reason. We're just the destructive idiots destroying everything that's on her. We are the viruses on the planet. <laughs> One of the many viruses destroying our planet. But yeah, hopefully you learned a little something good today. Hopefully something was beneficial. Look into any of that stuff, and we will get back to you sometime soon with some more goodies. Let's end this with some weird facts. Charles Menches was selling ice cream in paper dishes at a fair in St. Louis, Missouri. Business was good on that hot summer's day in 1904. People were buying so much ice cream that Menches ran out of paper dishes. Thinking fast, he ran to a man selling crisp hot waffles. Menches bought some and twisted them into cone shapes. The new ice cream treats were very popular in St. Louis that day. And ice cream cones, especially the waffle-like sugar cones, have been popular ever since. They are way better than the regular cones. An elephant has 40,000 different muscles in its trunk alone. That's just awesome. <laughs> Nairobi, Kenya, is a city in Africa only 80 miles from the equator. Boston, Massachusetts is a city in North America over 3,000 miles from the equator. So in Nairobi, must have a much hotter August than Boston, right? Wrong. August in Nairobi is much cooler than August in Boston. Why? Because Nairobi is higher above sea level than Boston. And also because Nairobi in August, has heavy clouds that block out the sun. In fact, in August 1975, people in Boston were suffering through a heat wave. But at the same time, time in Nairobi, people were sleeping under two blankets. Huh. Ah, yeah. A little something for us to learn and have fun with. That's it. Be good to yourself. Keep the monster at bay. Take care of the ones around you. And hopefully they'll take care of you too. Uh, be good. Rate, review, tell a friend. Send us a question or comment. We'll get back to you. 
hopefully tomorrow, the normal Thursday Comics and MS episode. And we'll see you then. Or hear you then. Or hear me then. <laughs>